All right, Jesse, last week was actually one of the saddest stories we ever covered. What do you have for me for this Halloween week? When a restaurant owner dabbles in the dark arts, death seems to come to those she loves. But is she really cursed or simply a killer? I'm Andy Cassette. And I'm Jesse Prey, and this is Love Murder. Hi, Jesse. Welcome back, everyone, to Love Murder, a podcast about spooky spouses, perturbing paramours, and love gone fatally wrong. You can find Love Murder on Twitter and Instagram at Love Murder Pod and on Facebook by searching Love Murder Podcast. And as always, if you enjoy this show, please love slash murder a five star rating on your podcast app, subscribe, and review to help new people discover the show. I say it every week, but every week you guys outdo yourself. Thank you so much for all the kind words this week. It really means a lot. Yeah. I mean, you were so elated, Jesse. I am every week. I'm so happy. And I'm also so sorry. We made so many of you guys sad last week. I had like so many comments that you had to stop the podcast or stop listening for the first time ever. And, you know, I just want to give you all a virtual hug. That was a hard one, huh? That was really rough. That was really, really rough. But you said it was listener recommended by like a ton of people, right? It was a ton of people <laughs> recommended this. So hopefully, and hopefully they listened all the way through. I hope so too. And I did get some follow-up requests for like similar, like torture mom style stories or cases, which I think we're going to take a big old breather on that genre for a little yeah, bit. Maybe for like a year. <laughs> And only every, you know, quarterly, we can get into a bad torture mom scenario situation here. I feel like it's a trade-off. It's whenever you cover an Amish case, then you can do another torture mom. (laughs) Deal, deal. I got to dig up another Amish case. Those are great. This week, obviously, it's Halloween week. Happy Halloween, everyone. And I do highly recommend that if you are new to the show and you didn't listen to our Halloween episodes last year... They were some of my favorite that we've ever done, Andy. Oh my God, I know. They were amazing. Yeah, those were episodes 17 and 18. It was Cursed, which was Leonardo Cianciulli, the first Italian female serial killer. And (laughs) number 18 was The Corpse Bride. Remember that one? Oh yeah. I have to forget. (laughs) Yeah, there's some of our most memorable episodes. So guys, if you haven't, definitely go back. This one is a little less... Halloweeny, but there's still something supernatural in the air. So I think it, it fits for a spooky week. Are you ready to get into it, Andy? Yeah. Around the globe, for all of history, superstition has played a role in human belief. And that was certainly true in a restaurant kitchen in Macon, Georgia, in 1956. A man named William came into the restaurant to pick up his wife, Cleo, a waitress, at the end of her shift. When he entered the warm kitchen, the air still thick with the smell of cooking grease and fried food, he instead found the restaurant's owner, Anjette Lyles, a striking woman with platinum silver hair whispering to a thick red candle that was burning in an upturned glass jar. While Cleo finished her side work, William couldn't help but stare at the candle. Every now and then the flame wavered and flared as though it was catching a breeze, something that was impossible in its glass case. 
And Jet noticed him watching. She smiled and leaned over. My beloved is coming in tonight. When the flame moves, it means he's getting closer. William wanted to laugh, but Anjette's face showed no sign that what she said was a joke. Instead, she whispered something so low that William couldn't hear directly to the candle and then left the room. On the way home, he asked his wife what the hell her crazy boss had been up to in there. Oh, Cleo said, she has them burning all the time, all different sizes and colors. She talks to them too. Sometimes she would put photos or notes beneath the candle as it burned. And it was the most important to whisper to the candle as you lit it, Anjette had told Cleo. You have to tell it what you want it to do. Anjette had candles for everything, and she wasn't shy about telling her employees what she magicked up with them. The tall green ones that had the Lord's Prayer on them were called St. Anthony's candles, and they were supposed to bring luck or money. She had white candles for peace and red candles for love. She even had orange candles to keep people from gossiping about her, though Cleo figured a better way to stop people from talking about you would be to stop whispering to candles in plain sight. Yeah, that might be a good place to start. <laughs> might be a good place to start before you bring in the old orange candles. Yes, all the candles had a purpose. So did the powders, roots, and salts that Anjet got from an alleged voodoo man. Each color and whispered spell brought what you deserved into your life. And though no one had witnessed Anjet light the black candle yet, the one that would bring death, it would reason to believe perhaps she was lighting them behind closed doors because, as you'll come to see, death followed Anjet wherever she went striking down four of those most close to her in only a matter of years. But did it follow her or did she invite it? I was going to ask you if it was like actual death or if it was like metaphorical death, you know, because a lot of people say that like the black candles, it can be death of like a relationship or death of yes. like, you know what I mean? No, it's, this is actual for actual dead death. people. Okay. Wow. Yes. Okay. Yeah. Wow. That's... Yes. One, we don't know. We don't know where it's coming from, but I guess we'll find out. Also, this is a listener request from Mandy T. Mandy, thank you so much. Mandy actually wrote to me, I think over a year ago at this point, almost a year exactly. Yeah, with this story. And I was like, this is phenomenal. We'll absolutely put this on the docket. Mandy, sorry, it has taken me so long to get to this story, but I think you'll all really enjoy it. So thanks again, Mandy. And the main source I used today was Whisper to the Black Candle by Jacqueline Weldon White. So let's talk about our spooky little protagonist, Anjette Donovan. Anjette was born in Macon, Georgia in August of 1925, one of three children and the only girl born to William and Jetta Donovan. At the age of 22, in October of 1947, she married Ben Franklin Lyles Jr., who went by the nickname Little Ben. Ben was fresh out of the army and World War II, and the couple was young, striking, and deliriously in love. Soon after the wedding, Ben bought out his brother in the family business at the Lyles' restaurant. The post-war economy was great and business was booming. Charming, outgoing Anjette began to help out at the front of the house at the restaurant and people just absolutely loved her. Anjette found that she actually had quite a flair for hospitality. The loved-up couple got a surprise when they found out Anjette was pregnant only a couple weeks after the wedding. So it was like 
real honeymoon baby right there. Oh, yeah. And Anjette suffered through a miserably hot last trimester, ultimately giving birth in a Georgia heat wave in July of 1948. Oh, my God. They said it had been in the sweltering high 90s for weeks. Can you imagine? And humid. So humid. Oh, this poor woman. But yes, in July of 1948, she gave birth to a sweet little girl they named Marsha Elaine. When Marsha was only six weeks old, Julia Lyles, Ben's mother, who predominantly ran the family business, required surgery. And she ended up needing to be hospitalized for a few weeks following the surgery. With Anjette out caring for newborn Marsha, the brunt of running the entire restaurant fell to Ben, and he was not up to the challenge. Buckling under the pressure, Ben began to drink heavily, occasionally not returning home at all at night. Oh, I know. It's so hard when you're at home with a six-week-old and your husband's just, you have no idea. One evening, it got so bad that Anjette's mother, Jetta, had to haul him home from a stoop that he had passed out on. Apparently, one of Jetta's friends saw him on the stoop and called her in the middle of the night and was like, hey, I just passed by your son-in-law. He's like uh, passed out on the street. You might want to think about bringing him home. So embarrassing. Oh, my God. So embarrassing. So she dragged him home, but it was like four in the morning or something, and and Jet had to try to wake him up because he needed to get up and start. They served breakfast, lunch, and dinner. Okay. So she was like, look, there's going to be people like lawyers and judges that come in for their breakfast before they go to the courthouse. You need to get up and get into that restaurant. Yep. And he was just so drunk that he couldn't even stand up. So she had to literally strap her six-week baby to her chest, go and open that restaurant, do all the cooking, the cleaning, the busing, run the whole place while caring for a six-week-old. Jeez, I cannot even imagine. Strength to women, man. You do what you got to do. Even with a baby strapped to your chest, you go for it, you know? Yeah. As fall turned into winter, Ben had not rectified his behavior. Even as Julia Lyles recovered and returned to the restaurant, her wayward son did not. And Jet instead made up for his absence by going to work seven days a week and setting up a makeshift crib in the restaurant's kitchen for little baby Marsha. Wow. Wow. Yeah. Ben sank lower into gambling and booze, even eventually wrecking the family's only car while under the influence. Oh my goodness. He needs to stop. Yeah, I would be so pissed. So Anjette tried to ignore her failing marriage by burying herself in work. And obviously she was working a lot. She has a baby to care for. It was almost like she didn't have time to be mad at him, you know? Yeah. She did enjoy working in the restaurant and she found it did distract her from what was going on in her life. She really loved connecting with the regulars. She was like an extrovert like this. So it wasn't like all bad during this era, you know? However, her world got even heavier when Ben started to get really, really sick. So apparently he suffered from rheumatic fever, which was a disease that he contracted while he was in the military. And it caused him to have a serious heart condition and occasionally painful swelling of the legs and feet. Okay. So Ben's condition, not probably being helped by the copious amounts of alcohol. No, that's what I was just going to say. Yeah, it deteriorated to a point where he had to be admitted to a nearby veterans hospital. And while he was there, they decided that they would classify him as totally disabled. 
and he was awarded a full government pension that provided the family with several hundred dollars per month, which was actually really good in this era. Okay. So, and Jet actually was doing better with Ben at this point because number one, the health scare made him stop drinking for a little while. Good. So that was good. So he was on the men then. And then when he was, you know, through his disability check, bringing in several, you know, hundred dollars, which is like kind of like several thousand dollars in today's money. She was like, you don't need to come to the restaurant. You're bringing in some cash doing nothing. So fine. You know, I'll go into the restaurant. So this was like a a brief, happy spot in their marriage. And so much so that they actually made baby number two around this time. And was he like staying at home with the baby or was she still bringing it to work? I think she was still bringing it to work. I think things were better, but I think she just still didn't really trust him. Okay. (laughs) (laughs) And, you know, her employees really helped out with the babies a lot. Like she had a really, really good team around her and they were super caring. And like, it sounded like they just kind of like passed the baby around, you know? So awesome. Is such a fun way for a kid to grow up, you know, with so many people around that like love them and so such a big social outlet, you know? Yep. So their second daughter, Carla, was born in May of 1951. Unfortunately for Anjette and the Lyles restaurant, her second pregnancy had been much, much rougher than her first. And by the time Carla was only a month old, Anjette had had to miss several months of work. So she was like basically bedridden for most of her second pregnancy. Oh my God. So obviously Julia was left running the restaurant entirely by herself. And she just wasn't as much of like a show woman as Anjette. So business kind of had failed a little bit. It wasn't like totally on the outs. It's just like they weren't making as much money as they did when Anjette was in the restaurant every day. Okay. At this point, Ben had kind of relapsed. And Jet's really sick. She's at home. The restaurant's not making the money it used to. Ben starts drinking and gambling again. And he, at this point, because he had bought out his brother, was the majority stakeholder in the restaurant. And so without consulting his mother or wife at this point, in June of 1951, he sold the restaurant. I knew you were going to say that. Uh, it had been in their family for 30 years. Oh my God, that is so beyond. Like Also, Andrea, he sold it for $2,500. What do you mean? That's how much he sold it to this woman Lola for. So that's in today's money, only $26,000 still. So I'm talking $2,500 was the amount he got for a restaurant that had been open and operated by his family for 30 years. Yeah, well, I mean, it's he's drinking and gambling he doesn't care. You know what I mean? He does not care. And Jet was furious. Also, the entire profit, that low, low amount of $2,500 went completely to his gambling debts. Oh my God. So now she has a one month old newborn. She has had a terrible pregnancy and they have no income now except for his disability. Oh my God. Yeah. So she was really pissed. She actually left Ben for a little while during this period. She took the kids to her brother and sister-in-laws for a little while. But eventually she decided that she wanted the family to try to make it work and she moved back in with Ben. But things just went from bad to worse because for some reason, I don't know why, I don't know if he was doing better or he had a physical or whatever reason, Ben's disability was reduced from 100% to 10%. 
So he had been making, like I said, several hundred dollars a month, which was keeping the family afloat. Now he's only getting 190. I wonder why. I wonder if they were like, well, you're just exacerbating your condition by drinking. I have no idea. It doesn't say why, but for whatever reason, it got lowered. That's like decimated. That's not lowered. Yeah, it is just decimated. I mean, that's no matter what era you're in, $190 for a family of four to survive on. Come on. Unreal. It's unreal. I think that ends up being more like maybe $1,900 a month, but still in today's money, you know, that's impossible. So at this point, Anjette had to basically only dress her kids in hand-me-downs, beg for hand-me-downs, like ask if people could spare food and stuff. It was just a really bitter time because she's a very proud woman. And she really liked, you know, working in the restaurant and running it and managing it and, you know, being a professional woman. So this is like a huge hit to their family, to their finances and to her personally and her ego, you know. By December, it got worse. Ben had developed a frightening new health problem. At any hour of the day, Ben would experience torrential nosebleeds. And by late January, he was bleeding profusely out of both his nose and mouth. Oh my God, he's a mess, huh? A mess. So he was admitted to the hospital on January 23rd, 1952. And the doctors were completely mystified to the cause of his myriad health issues. I mean... They knew that he had rheumatic fever, but that did not account for the insane bleeding. He had frequent vomiting, uncontrollable shaking and seizures, as well as bouts of delirium. So they did test after test after test on this guy, and they could not figure out what was going on. He ended up slipping into a coma shortly after being admitted to the hospital And within two days, Ben Franklin Lyles Jr. was dead. Oh, my God. Yeah. So after some discussion, the doctors finally decided that the cause of death must have been encephalitis, which is an inflammation of the brain generally caused by infection. Of course, (sighs) Anjette was beside herself. She was a 26-year-old widow with no marketable skills, a toddler and a baby, and very little left to support her. I mean, she has the like skill of she can like sell and talk to people. Yes, I think absolutely she should get into another restaurant setting, even if she doesn't own it, clearly, you know? Yeah. Yeah. I think she was just kind of in a space of despair at this moment, you Uh, know? Yeah. Could you imagine with two kids now? Like no husband, husband. no income, I guess. So she did still get a pension after he passed away, but it was further reduced to only $150 a month. Jesus. So yeah, she had little choice but to move back in with her parents and allow family members to help her put food on the table. Ben's mother, Julia, still reeling from the shocking and quick loss of her son, became even closer with her daughter-in-law and grandchildren. Good. Yeah, so she would actually end up like going and staying with the Donovans for several weeks at a time as well. So the, the family union stayed very close. And Jet bucked up. She got a job at another restaurant as a bookkeeper, worked tremendously hard, and she saved every last cent. The lean times and long hours caused Anjette to lose a ton of weight and for her hair to turn prematurely gray. However, on her, it looked platinum. And between that and her new slim figure... <laughs> so chic. It was. It was. Everyone was like, wow, she is so glamorous and sophisticated. <laughs> Oh my God, I hope when I go gray, it goes like that platinum gray. It's so cool. 
It is. It's so, so pretty. My mother-in-law has like beautiful, like white platinum hair. Ugh, it's so cool. Mine is going to be like, like murky, mousy rat nest gray. <laughs> Mine I could just probably tell. will be too. <laughs> Mine probably will be too. So even though this is an unbelievably hard time, it's kind of like, you know, the pressure that makes the diamond. Like she's working hard for her family. She's saving money. She looks great. And by spring of 1955, and Jet had managed to secure two bank loans and bought back the Lyles's restaurant. You are lying. No. Isn't this great? That's incredible. So apparently had been briefly owned by this woman, Lola, and Lola was also a businesswoman. Shout out to random Lola over here because <laughs> she had bought it from Ben for $2,500, yeah. remember? And she sold it back to Anjette only four years later for $12,000. Wow. Yeah, she made a tidy little sum on that. Wow. But she must have kept it up and like really just done a good job. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, she must have if she was able to command that price. But I think also, Jess really got, wanted that spot. She also got it for real cheap too, let's remember. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> and I still don't know the circumstances of how. Maybe her husband was like a bookie or something or like she's a bookie. And <laughs> yeah, and he, he's like, look, if you can forgive some of my debts, I'll sell you this restaurant for a low, low price. <laughs> full-on conspiracy theory. Yeah, this, we have no, we have no, this is just conjecture, guys. We don't know. I don't even know Lola's last name. But yeah, so she changed the name of the restaurant to Anjet's now, but it's the old Lyles's restaurant. Was it La 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 Lola's in between? Let's go with that. That's what okay. it was, 100%. <laughs> so the food at Anjet's was totally standard Southern fare. It was like fried vegetables and fried meat with freshly made biscuits and cornbread. Yum. It sounds really good. It sounds like just good Southern comfort food. And it was just a very typical menu. It was actually very similar to the menu that Ben's father had opened the restaurant with in 1925. But what made this restaurant a success was truly Anjette. Like she just had this big personality and people wanted to come in and just like talk to her. I mean, you remember when we were like bartending and waiting tables, that was like 90% of the reason we would go to a place. Yeah. You can pour a vodka soda and you can tell me a good story. I'm there. I don't need some fancy mixology. <laughs> we definitely do not need fancy mixology. No, we do not. So, and Jets actually became a really, really big success. And she just had a huge fan club. One regular who might have been slightly more charmed than the others was a Marine Corps veteran and commercial co-pilot named Joe Buddy Gabbert, who met Anjet at her restaurant after sending his steak back. <laughs> why? Did it say why? It was overcooked. Oh. And so I guess like Anjette herself came out with the now medium rare steak, which I kind of agree with him. Medium rare is the only way you should go steak or rarer. I know. It's just such a waste to send it back. I'm sure somebody ate it. You think? Oh, yeah. When I worked in restaurants, if somebody sent something back, we always ate it. <laughs> like dirty little grabby hamsters. <laughs> We just cut off the piece that the person had eaten. <laughs> Waste not one. Oh, God. Yeah. So Anjette like actually came out of the kitchen herself and delivered the steak to Buddy here. And let's just say that the steak was not the only hot dish that he had eyes for. <laughs> 
That one didn't go over the way I thought it was going to go over, but I tried. What, like a total mom joke? It didn't go over like that? <laughs> okay, it did go over exactly like I intended. Exactly. Total mom joke. <laughs> so Buddy wasn't usually the forward type, but by the time Anjette rang him up, he was so infatuated with her that he said, brown eyes, I'm going to marry you someday. And though it wasn't love at first sight for Anjette as well, she did find herself won over by Buddy eventually. When he decided to return to his home state of Texas to earn more money piloting a crop dusting plane, he begged Anjette and the girls to come with him. Anjette naturally refused, both out of propriety and business, but she did leave the kids with her parents and visit Buddy for a week, which was kind of scandalous enough as an unmarried woman in this time period. Yeah, with two kids, for sure. Exactly, yeah. The vacation went so swimmingly that when the couple reached the Carlsbad Caverns in New Mexico at the end of their romantic road trip, Buddy proposed on the spot. After a celebratory meal in which Buddy was so excited he could hardly finish his dinner, he declared that they must find a judge and marry immediately. As described in Whisper to the Black Candle. And Jet laughed at his eagerness, but willingly went along with his plans. Around 11 p.m., they found the police department and walked in. We want to get married tonight, Buddy announced. The sleepy man at the desk tried to talk them out of it. Tonight? Look, there's nobody here who can do that tonight. There's a judge who could marry you first thing in the morning. He'll be at the courthouse by 9 o'clock. Why don't you come back then? But Buddy was adamant. He'd finally gotten Anjet to agree to marriage, and he wasn't taking any chance on her changing her mind. Dude, chill out chill bro yeah he kept after the man asking about justices of the peace and people in nearby towns who might perform the ceremony eventually the desk sergeant agreed to see what he could do he called around got a judge out of bed and persuaded him to come to the courthouse wait is this the same night as dinner the same night he proposed yes yeah this is like so intense like there's a little bit of a like bing red flag alert here Definite love, murder, red flag on the field. They also hadn't known each other for very long at this point either. It'd only been like a matter of months. And and Jet doesn't think this is weird? I, I think she was ready for a little romance. It had okay. been it had been a couple years since her husband had passed. So I think she was ready to jump back in and he was so clearly besotted with her. I think sometimes we can overlook a red flag, especially when it's a relationship moving too fast because you want to believe that romance happens like that. You want to just be like, oh, when you know, you know, you know, I mean, coming from the girl that got married five months after meeting her husband, you know? Yeah. (laughs) Yeah, says the girl that married her husband 12 years after meeting him. (laughs) Opposites attract, Andrea. Uh... Yeah, so apparently Anjette did not think this was a red flag. And the two ended up getting married just before midnight. And then they started home the next day. When the newlyweds went back to Macon in late June of 1955, they moved in with the Donovans, whose house you can just imagine was full to the brim because it was her parents, her kids, now her husband, and her ex-mother-in-law was still coming to stay for weeks at a time too. Yeah, yeah. So the house was packed. And at first, Anjette didn't really mind though because Buddy was a pilot, so he was gone so often for work Okay, that she was like, why would we get a house when, you know, you're not here most of the time. But Buddy really wanted his family to have their own space, which makes sense to me. And the couple began to house hunt. And it seemed like the sky was the limit for the happy couple until 
Buddy required surgery for an old broken wrist injury that was flaring up and disrupting his job as a pilot. So he was in general entirely healthy. He just had had a broken wrist that had never healed properly. Okay. So he needed to go into the hospital and he did on November 3rd. And it was just a quick like 90 minute procedure. And the, you know, orthopedic surgeon said everything went perfectly swell. However, after the surgery, poor buddy developed a very, very serious rash. And the doctors initially believed that it was a side effect of the anesthesia. Okay. Within five days of the surgery, Buddy was completely covered with a blistering, oozing rash that oh, went Jessie. from Ugh. his <laughs> <laughs> just it's too open early for that. Jesse, uh, all the way down from his neck, down his chest, his arms, and even like down to his knees. The poor guy. Oh my God. Yeah. And it also caused his entire body to swell so badly that he couldn't even open his eyes. Okay. What? I know. And they were like, what is going on? They were doing everything. They were administering antibiotics. They're running tests. They have no idea what could have triggered this attack. He was in so much pain, even though they were, you know, delivering heavy narcotics via IV. He's still like in between getting his pain medication, apparently said to one of the nurses, like, please just let me die. Oh, my God. Yeah, it happened so fast. So one of the things that the doctor said was, have you been exposed to arsenic? Because this could be something that accompanies arsenic poisoning. And he's like, no, I absolutely haven't been. He's like, I did, um, you know, pilot a crop dusting plane, which, you know, spills insecticides. And they're like, no, we really don't think that could be it. And they were like, have you ever been treated for syphilis? And he's like, no. And I guess like back in the day, one of the treatments for syphilis was a medication that involved tiny little bits of arsenic. Oh my God. I know. It's like really, really is such a bummer. You already have syphilis and now they're going to poison you to get you better. (laughs) Yeah. So yeah, they had no idea what was going on. And it got so bad that they they did, they were like, we don't know what to do at this point for him. We recommend that you take him home so that he's at least comfortable and you hire a night nurse to help take care of him. So that's what Anjette did. She hired a night nurse named Jenny to take care of him. And it got so bad that Jenny basically just tied his hands up to like the bedpost at night so that he wouldn't scratch and open up all his sores. Oh my God, Jesse. Oh my God. I did not know where that was going and I did not think it was going there. Oh my God. <laughs> Do you really realize trying? how much earlier it is here than where you are? It is. It is. Andy, we're doing this at very early in the morning because Andy has to go to Vegas for work tomorrow. Today. You're going today. Going today. Yeah. So it is a little early for murder for you not right now. Huh? For blistering open oozing sores. Yeah, it got really bad though, Andy. I gotta tell you, it gets worse. So basically she was, you know, shooting him up with drugs intravenously. Who? Uh, the night nurse. Okay. And she got to a point where she couldn't no longer find a vein because okay, he Jessie, was Jessie. so Jessie. covered with scabs everywhere. <sighs> like literally she had to do the old like in between the toes, like heroin trick because like oh. every other part of his body was covered with scabs. 
Yeah. This is bad. This is not a good way to go, man. This is horrifying. This is like like a horror movie type thing. <sighs> so eventually Jenny was like, look, you have to get him back in the hospital. He is getting worse. I don't know what's going on. He's going to die if you don't get him back into the hospital. So they rushed Buddy back to the Parkview Hospital, but the doctors also couldn't really do that much for him. He was completely delirious at this point, like just not on this realm any longer. And a shadow of the man that Anjette had married less than six months earlier. On December 2nd, 1955, Buddy's kidneys failed and his life slipped away. And Jet had gone from newlywed to widow in half a year. Again. The doctors pressured Anjette to let them perform an autopsy as they were still completely mystified as to what had happened to the previously healthy young man, but Anjette refused. When the doctor tried to impress upon her the importance of an autopsy to figure out what the heck happened, Anjette became hysterical, bursting into tears and declaring that she had made a fervent promise to her dead husband that she would never let anyone, quote, cut him up. So uh -huh. the doctor let the issue drop and Buddy's parents flew out for the funeral and sweet, strong Joe Buddy Gabbert was laid to rest on December 4th with no autopsy. Hmm. So gossip rang out all over town when only weeks later, the altogether too merry widow was seen going out on dates with a man named Bob Franks, another Capital Airways pilot and former boss of buddies. He has such a type, huh? So she likes those pilot men, those airway men. She's not like the people on Love Island who say that they don't have a type. <laughs> I haven't watched Love Island. Is it good? I mean, it's just literally mind numbing, but it's so great to watch when I'm doing my like green chef. Yeah. <laughs> when you're just unwinding. I'm like, cooking. yes, she's complete decompressing, like chopping onions and watching Love Island on my iPhone. Oh, man. I also feel like pilots were a big deal in the 1950s. Oh, yeah. They were like top of the food chain sex symbols, you know? Also, I would like to compliment you on your, you said that the sky's the limit with the family and <laughs> you were, you kept talking and I wanted to, I wanted to congratulate you on that. <laughs> Wonderful. Thank you. You know, I didn't even mean it. And then it came out of my mouth too. And I realized it and I was like, I'm not going to acknowledge that. I'm not going to acknowledge I, that one. I wanted to so bad that 15 minutes later, I'm acknowledging it. Thank you. I appreciate it. Yeah. So it's if you really want to do nice it again, to have a best friend yeah. who <laughs> acknowledges your bad puns. Everyone gets you an Andy in your life. <laughs> so Jenny, the nurse, ran into Anjette only two months after Buddy's terrible death. And she was shocked to find Anjette in uncommonly good spirits. Anjette disclosed to Jenny that she was happier than she had ever been in her entire life. She had met a wonderful man. Her business was booming and she was set to receive a pile of insurance money. Uh-oh. I don't know if you want to like, even like if that's the case, I don't know if you ever really want to like be talking about that around town. Well, Jenny said the only reason she mentioned it was because when he was dying, Jenny, of course, was a professional nurse and she had done some types of hospice care. So she was like, when he was dying, she was like, did you get life insurance on him? Do you have a policy on him? Because 
your husband's going to die and you're going to need help. So she kind of set it up. So later when she ran into it, Jed, it was still weird. It was weird how happy she was. She wasn't like, thank you for your recommendation. Like my family's yeah, yeah, covered. Yeah. She was like, yeah, life is great. I've got a man. I'm buying a new car. Oh my God. I got so much money. I'm filthy rich. I'm so glad my husband is dead. That's basically how Jenny described it. She was like, whoa. That is a weird reaction to somebody's husband dying less than two months ago. Yeah, not ideal, not ideal. So yeah, like I said, she bought a brand new Cadillac. She bought herself a new, beautiful three-bedroom, two-bathroom home right in town. She was spending that money, honey. So, and Jet invited Julia Lyles to move in with the family, which is a nice thing to do. That's nice that she is still you know, taking care of her old mother-in-law. And she also hired a full-time maid named Carmen Howard to join the household. Around this time, Marsha was starting third grade and Carla was starting kindergarten. And the family was very happy at this point, obviously. They had suffered two great tragedies. But on the flip side, Anjette was really able to provide for the first time, like new clothing for the children. They had new toys for the first time and they were at a really fun age. I mean, they're like five and eight, I think. And like they would go to school then they would like run to the restaurant and then they'd literally like run around the restaurant, eat at the counter and like, you know, play there until they went home at night. It sounded like a really fun lifestyle for a kid. Okay. So you'd think that Anjette had everything she wanted. But no, she hungered for more. <laughs> it was during the Halloween Once episode, again, is that yeah. like a play on like the restaurant and being hungry and like... No, I think I was probably just like hungry when I was writing the script. Okay. This was during 1956. And around this time, Anjette began to ask her maid Carmen to give her a ride out to a ramshackle house near an old cotton mill where she would see a man who reportedly practiced black magic. Uh-oh. Yeah. So Carmen wasn't superstitious herself. So the alleged voodoo didn't bother her. Like she wasn't freaked out by it. But she also didn't love hanging around in the car in a not so nice neighborhood no. for hours. Uh, no. Well, well, and Jet and no. this old man practiced witchcraft and he like read her fortune and they did all sorts of weird things, you know. So yeah, she's I don't like, know if that's in a job description. Yeah, I have to hang out here for hours while you do some weird shit with an old man in a weird yeah. old house. Yeah. And then when she was done, she would come back to the car with armloads of candles, powders, like roots that were in cans of oil and like all of this random stuff. Baby feet. Yeah, hopefully not. Carmen did not know what all the stuff was for, but she kind of guessed that it might be for a love spell because what she would do when she got home was light this red candle and she would put photos of Bob Franks underneath it or like notes from him underneath the red candle as it burned in order to bring him toward her was the point. Okay. Yeah. And Jet was really into Bob as she even gave him a key to her house. She was spending more of that insurance money to go on trips like when he was traveling because he was an international pilot. So she would like spend money to go on trips with him to try to meet him in places where he was flying anyway for work. And I got the impression that she was definitely like kind of chasing him. And he was like, 
oh, you're just kind of like my my making Georgia girl, like when I'm there, you know, like any port in the storm. Okay. And she was like looking for a new husband, you know? Okay. So, and Jet was busy with other matters at the time, other than just chasing this guy around and going to see the voodoo man. She was mostly attempting to get her mother-in-law, Julia, to make out a will. So Julia had been diagnosed with breast cancer and she had undergone a mastectomy. She did recover, you know, the the doctors gave her a good prognosis and she did return to working in the restaurant with Anjette. But Anjette was like, hey, you know, you've been really sick before. You need to figure out your will and put your affairs in order. We just, you never know, especially in this family, people just seem to die suddenly. So, you know, maybe get that will together. But Julia's family had gone through a terrible breakup over a will. Like she was basically estranged from a whole side of her family because they had gotten to a fight about a will. And so, yeah, it's totally ridiculous. So she had had this kind of like PTSD involved in like actually understanding a will done. Yeah. Yeah. So she kept refusing and it got to a point where one of Anjette's regulars was an attorney and he did like a state type law. And so he came in and she showed him, apparently, like, when Julia was out, Anjette went through her financial records. Okay. And Anjette showed this attorney that Julia had two bank accounts and that one had as much as $50,000 in it and another one had $40,000 in it. So $90,000 in the 1950s is, like, an insane amount of money. That's more like 900000 in today's so A million money. dollars, yeah. Yeah, so she's pushing a milli. Wow. And she's like, look, she has a pretty big estate. Even though she was living with Anjette, she had, like, a, a house, too, that I think she was, like, renting out or something. So basically, Anjette's like, can you help me convince her that she needs to make a will? And... The attorney was like, look, if if she will come see me, I'll try to talk to her or I'll try to talk to her when I'm in here and tell her like what happens when people die and they don't have wills and how complicated it gets for the family. Yeah. But like you can't make anyone do anything. You know, you no. can lead a horse to water. You can't make them sign away all their money to you. Yeah. <laughs> Good luck with that, Anjette. <laughs> and at the time, Julia's like, no, I'm healthy. My doctors are fine. Like says I'm fine. Like why do I need this? But it seemed that not too long after this conversation, Mrs. Lyles was actually in need of a will because in August of 1957, she became extremely sick again. But this time it wasn't cancer. They didn't know what it was. She was vomiting blood and turning purple in color, her skin. According to Anjette... Julia initially refused medical treatment, insisting that she simply needed to rest and recover at home. Now, I don't know if this is true or if it was just something Anjette said, but Anjette said that having had to go through so much with cancer, she just was really tired of medical treatment and she just wanted to stay at home. Once again, totally understandable. Exactly. So she was like, I just want to rest and relax at home. And eventually she did get a doctor to come in and make a house call. And that doctor found that Julia's arms and legs were so swollen that she was having a hard time walking or even moving. And she was so sick to her stomach that she was unable to sleep because she kept having to wake up to throw up. Oh, my God. Yeah. So he's like, look, she needs to be in a hospital. Like she's getting dehydrated. Things are going really poorly. I don't know what's going on with her. They need to run tests. So... 
I guess for one additional week, Julia really didn't want to go to the hospital because she'd obviously spent a lot of time there in her life. But Anjette compelled her to, and she finally gets into the hospital, but she's just not doing well. And she's just having a hard time eating. So her friends and family were trying to entice her to eat. They're bringing her favorite dishes from home. And eventually the only thing that she could force down was Anjette's buttermilk that she brought special for her from the restaurant. Uh Uh-oh. Uh-oh. Well, Julia's niece and other family members were praying for her survival, and Jet seemed sure that she was going to die. She told lots of people that she was absolutely sure that she was going to die and that Julia was sure that she was going to die too. And so she had given her this letter that said that Jet should be in charge of all of her burial arrangements and she knows her wishes. And... And Jet, like I said, had a very forceful personality and she got along well with people. So while she had been in the hospital, you know, with not only Julia, now she's also had two husbands that were hospitalized for certain amounts of time, you know, and she'd gotten to know some of the staff at the hospital. So she took this note that read, to whom it may concern, in the event of my death, my daughter-in-law and Jet Donovan Lyles is to have charge of all funeral arrangements, as I have discussed with such arrangements with her, and she knows my wishes and desires concerning the same. And she dated and signed it on the second day of September 1957, and she took it to one of the hospital clerks and got it notarized. Okay. So she's like, definitely like, well, everyone else is trying to like, make sure that... Julia's going to survive and Jed is putting in all of the legwork and getting her death situated. Okay. So Julia struggled through weeks in the hospital without the doctors knowing what was ailing her. They eventually proposed a procedure that would remove a small part of Julia's sternum for analysis to hopefully discover and stop what disease was killing her. It might not tell us anything, but it could. And it's the only thing we have left to do. One of the doctors explained to Anjette. But Anjette pushed back. She said, like, what could happen? Could she lose her life just by you taking out part of her sternum? Like, she's so weak. Like, maybe she's not going to survive this surgery just to find out. And they're like, that is a very real concern. But if we don't do it at all, there's an even greater chance that she's going to die. And Anjette was like, you know what? I just can't make that choice. I'm not going to do anything that could endanger her life. So we're not doing the procedure. She essentially, by not letting them do the test and the surgery, signed Julia's death warrant because days later on September 29th, 1957, Julia Lyles died in her hospital bed. So let's review. Anjette's first husband died mysteriously in 1952. Her second husband died mysteriously in 1955. And now her mother-in-law died mysteriously In 1957, wouldn't you say this poor lady has some really bad luck, Andrea? Yeah. Also, where's Bob? Yeah, Bob's like, maybe I don't want to be involved in all of that. Don't worry, she's not going to kill you until she she gets that insurance policy on you. So there's no, he's no good to her dead right now. No, he's just all over her love candle. Exactly. He's just like his photo stuck to the bottom of a red candle right now. (laughs) So at some point it became clear that Anjette must have convinced Julia to create a will, even though other witnesses said that Julia had been resolutely against it because 
only a day or two after her death, and Jet goes, oh, BT dubs, I have Julia's will. Yeah, and Jet's going to go get a new hagwire. <laughs> yeah, she is. So, <gasps> and Jet's like, look. I got the will here. Turns out she left one third of her estate to her surviving son, one third to me, and one third to her beloved grandchildren, <laughs> you know, my children. So I'll take care of that for them. So that's like a cool $60,000 to Anjette right here. Wow. Plus Julia's house. Oh, Oof. my goodness. Well, despite the windfall, it became a rough holiday season for Anjette when Bob Franks revealed right before Christmas that not only did he not have any intention of marrying Anjette, that he was in fact seriously dating another woman. Uh-oh. Anjette was enraged, depressed, and desperate to win the man back. With HelloFresh, you get fresh, pre-measured ingredients and seasonal recipes delivered right to your doorstep. Skip trips to the grocery store and count on HelloFresh to make home cooking easy, fun, and affordable. That's why it's America's number one meal kit. Fall can be hectic, but HelloFresh's recipes save time you'd otherwise spend on meal prepping, grocery shopping, and chopping. So you can focus on getting back into a new routine and spending quality time with the family. HelloFresh offers 50 menu and market items to choose from every week, including vegetarian, calorie smart, and gourmet options, providing plenty of variety. Ingredients travel from the farm to your door within a week, so you get the convenience without skimping on the quality. HelloFresh isn't just for meals. Their marketplace features a variety of snacks, like this fall's pumpkin cinnamon rolls to get you in the mood for cozy season. Yum. Yeah, we have gone full meal kit crazy in our household since Alden started school. It's really fun because every day at like 530, we cook dinner together and she just loves it. Totally. And you also know how indecisive I can be, but it's been such a game changer having dinner already decided, ready to rock, all set at home. And we're also loving the veggie menu. So good. Go to HelloFresh.com slash LoveMurder14 and use code LOVEMURDER14 for up to 14 free meals, including free shipping. That's HelloFresh.com slash LOVEMURDER14. And use code LOVEMURDER14 for up to 14 free meals, including free shipping. Okay, Andy, you know I love mobile games, but the thing they're always missing is a story. And obviously, I'm here for a great narrative. Obviously. Match three games can be a lot of fun, but it seems like most of them are the same. The themes and characters change, but overall, it's the same boring format. Until now, Switchcraft is a brand new take on match three games. As you play, you unlock pieces of a beautiful, magical, and gripping graphic novel. Switchcraft is a mobile game with a unique blend of TV-worthy writing, choose-your-own-adventure style narrative, and thousands of magical match three levels. Yep, Switchcraft is exactly what I've been looking for. All that awesome match-free gameplay, but set in this incredibly compelling setting and story. In fact, I just started playing yesterday and I am already on level 42. It's addictive. Jessica, I am at level 30. So you know what I'm talking about. <laughs> yes. In Switchcraft, you take on a role of a witch at Pendle Hill, the world's top academy of witchcraft. Play your way through hundreds of enchanting match three levels, revealing a dark and winding mystery story. 
It all starts with the disappearance of your best friend. Now it's up to you to unravel the mystery of her disappearance using your magical match three skills. Along the way, you'll find unique characters, a gripping story, and even a little romance. The best part is that your choices in the game determine the outcome of the story. So you're in the driver's seat. Download Switchcraft for free and unlock the magical mystery. Now back to the show. And Jet was enraged, depressed, and desperate to win the man back. So she began hitting up that old fortune teller man like daily at this point. She was going there several times a week. And a cook at her restaurant became alarmed when she saw her light a black candle one night in February. I heard you only burned the black ones if you want someone to die, the cook said. Not always, said Anjette, and told the cook she just wanted the couple to break up, like the death of a relationship, like you were mentioning earlier, Andrea. Oh my God, I was so spot on. You were so spot on. Except. (laughs) Except for also she might mean death. So yeah, so she picked up the black candle and underneath was a piece of paper with the names of Bob and his new girlfriend. She told the cook that she was determined to break them up and win Bob back. Only weeks later, in mid-March of 1958, disaster struck once more when little Marsha Lyles, nine years old, began to get very, very sick. No. Yes. So one of Anjette's employees noticed that the sweet little girl was getting very ill and was the first one to alert Anjette that her daughter had a bad fever and wasn't feeling well. And Anjette was like, oh, it's okay. I'll just give her, you know, my health serum and health she'll suck right up. Um, yeah. Ex- <laughs> this was her health serum was whiskey and sugar. So she's basically like, oh, you're sick kid of mine. Here's an old fashioned. Hope you feel better. <laughs> so this is what the, the employee said that she saw. She was like, oh, no, no. I'll just give her a little bit of whiskey and sugar. And she'll buck right up. Is and she like wink, wink? Or is it like she no, thinks like that's legit, normal? She thought it was normal to give a, a nine-year-old child with a fever whiskey and sugar to make them feel better. Wow. Yeah. So the employee's like, I don't think that's going to cut it. I'm really worried about your kid. She's burning up. And so finally, Anjette consented to take the child to the doctor. You need to dehydrate the kid, not dehydrate them. Yeah. Marsha had a fever of 106 degrees, Andy. Whoa. What is like, what? What? Because fever of like 102 is bad. Yeah, 106 degree fever. So the doctor was like, you need to get her into the hospital right away. This is crisis level bad. So the doctors at the hospital put her on a cocktail of strong antibiotics and slowly her temperature began to drop. Over the next few days, Marcia did begin to improve. Despite reassurances from the medical staff that her daughter was on the mend, Anjette told a few close friends that she was sure that the little girl was going to die. At the time, her friends just believed that she was traumatized from the string of hospitalizations and deaths in her life. But later, some would say her certainty about her child's impending death was something more ominous. To make her baby daughter feel better, Anjette brought her favorite homemade lemonade to the hospital every day. 
And while the doctors allowed this and did not seem suspicious at all of this lemonade, it seemed, however, that someone else was. I don't get this because is she just poisoning everyone? That's basically the gist of it. Yes. Okay. Because it's like... (laughs) Spoiler alert, she's poisoning everyone. If you guys hadn't put it together yet, she's a serial poisoner. Because like, why are you going and like doing the whole black magic rigmarole if you're just actually poisoning everyone? It's like, it's like you, you're going to look bad either way. You're going to look bad because you're poisoning people and you're going to look bad because you're lighting black candles in front of people. Like people are going to think that it's your fault either way. Yeah, maybe... You know, it's not like a good cover up, like going and burning black candles isn't a good cover up if you're poisoning everyone. Well, she's just like, it was the black candle. It wasn't me. Although if she's lighting the black candle, then it's still her. Yeah, then it's her. Then it's her. That is a good point, Andy. I don't know what she's up to because I'm not a psychopath (laughs) serial poisoner, Andy. So I do not know what's going on in her head. I mean, I also especially don't know what is happening with her child. Like... You know, kill your mother-in-law, kill a couple husbands, whatever. But your baby? Whatever. (laughs) Okay, maybe not. That was callous. I apologize. I'm just saying that, like, you know, we've had so many cases where women have killed their husbands, you know? Yeah. Yeah. But your child? I know. Yeah. It's heartbreaking. But somebody was on to her. They were. Because while Marsha was in the hospital, the Bibb County coroner, Lester Chapman, received a telephone call. And apparently the voice on the phone said, you'd better act quick or Marsha Lyles will die. So before the coroner could ask any questions, the caller hung up. And at this point, the coroner didn't even really know who Anjet was. He he knew that the Lyles name was familiar. And so he had to like call around and figure out even who Marsha Lyles was and what her condition was. So eventually he spoke to Marsha's doctor who assured him that the little girl was actually doing well. She was on the up and she was going to most likely recover. But early the next week, a letter was delivered to a relative of Julia Lyles that read, please come at once. She's getting the same dose as the others. Please come at once. There was no signature and the relative didn't understand what it meant. However, when a second similar letter came a few days later, she consulted with other relatives. The letters seemed to warn that Marsha Lyles was in danger. So they debated over what to do and eventually went to Macon where they talked with an investigator in the sheriff's office and a member of the solicitor's staff. So now Lester Chapman, the coroner, was called and consulted. He remembered the weird phone call. He (laughs) related what he'd learned and the men finally decided that the accusations were so vague that there was no need to follow up on them. They thought somebody was just trying to stir up trouble. So they did nothing. Yeah, that's that's what people do in their spare time is they call a coroner's office and warn them. So the anonymous source obviously had very good reason to be worried. Soon after that, Marsha's condition began to deteriorate. The little girl's body was beginning to turn a mottled blue collar and she was sick so often she could no longer keep food down. Soon she was unable to swallow and then began to suffer from really bad hallucinations. It was so bad that she was like in a waking nightmare. They had to keep her constantly sedated because she screamed if she was awake. Oh, my God. She's nine years old. 
On March 12th, the doctors called a specialist named Dr. Robert Ireland to try to figure out what was plaguing the little girl. He immediately ordered that Marsha was to only receive food and drink delivered by hospital staff from the hospital cafeteria. Finally. I know, but like, I feel like that should have been the case the whole time, right? Well, clearly, yes. I mean, I guess that we're still talking about the 50s. They maybe didn't have the same policies that we have now. That would not happen in COVID era, obviously. No, no. Unfortunately, it was too little, too late. And Marsha passed away on April 4th, 1958, three months short of her 10th birthday. Oh my God, Jesse. I know. This is really, 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 really sad. It's just so sad. And it's really disgusting that it's her mother who did this to her and just stood by while her child was in pain. Unbelievable. So Dr. Ireland was angry. He had like fought tirelessly. He had tried everything to try to heal this sweet little girl. So he demanded an autopsy and he didn't even wait to get Anjette's permission. He's like, there's no way I'm not finding out what's happening here. So they can do that. They can just enforce it. I mean, I guess he did in this case because she had cried and cried and begged them not to autopsy her second husband. It seems like he didn't give her an opportunity this time. Yeah. Okay. However, when he was autopsying the body, he couldn't on first inspection figure out what had killed her. So Dr. Chapman, the county coroner, heard of Marsha's passing and he became extremely suspicious. Obviously, he had, you know, ignored those warning calls. So he spoke with another doctor to request further testing on Marsha's body when a second doctor could also not immediately discover what had gone wrong. They did have to, at that point, release the body so that Anjette could bury her daughter. So the coroner was like, take as much tissue as you possibly can. Okay. And also take a sample of like the embalming fluid that they use at the funeral parlor. He's like, I'm going to, I have a feeling we're going to do more tests on this. So just take everything you can and release the body to Anjette. Okay. So after the funeral, Anjette confessed to one of her employees now that she was worried about little Carla, her second daughter. She claimed that the family had clearly been the target of some black magic and that potentially the little girl was next. In fact, Anjette suggested that Carla probably wouldn't mind that so much. She says every day that she wants to go to heaven to be with Marsha. I don't know what to do with her, she said. My God. I think at this point she's gearing up to start poisoning her last remaining child. And this makes me think that the goal here was to get rid of her children so that she would be more attractive to Bob Franks. Because the impression I got was that his new girlfriend did not have children. So she was like, so I must need no children. Yes, I think that... She was thinking he doesn't want to marry somebody who has baggage. He doesn't want to raise somebody else's children. He wants his own family. If I just get rid of my kids, maybe I'll be the perfect woman to him. Now this, we, I'm not going to say the names like you guys know. I know you know at home, there's at least two women I can think of off the top of my head who did do this, purposely tried to kill their children because they were trying to be with a man who did not want children. But I don't want to say their names because we'll probably cover them at some point. <laughs> So I don't want to give anything away. But yes, but you guys know this. I mean, this is not out of the realm of possibility. During the trial that we're going to talk about soon, it seems like they focus on the monetary aspect. But knowing how wild she was about Bob and how obsessed she was at this point in her life, it, it would not surprise me. 
soon, rumors were rampant that Anjette had poisoned her own child. So they're just saying this around town. They're like, look, now this is the fourth person that has died mysteriously around Anjette. And, and I think she was giving something to her baby. So a regular who had always been fond of Anjette gave her a heads up. He's like, look, I think they're investigating you. People all over town are saying you poisoned your own child. And and Jet, deciding to go on the offensive, went to the coroner's office claiming that Carla had told her that she, Marsha, and a pair of twins from the neighborhood had been playing doctor and accidentally consumed some ant poison, which, lo and behold, was made up of 94% arsenic. Um... Yeah. So she's like, Carla, Carla, tell the doctor what happened. And the girl was clearly coached and trying to say that they had been playing somehow and consumed this poison. So the doctor is immediately alarmed. The first thing he does, obviously, is make sure that Carla's okay. And Carla did seem like she was fine. She was in fine health at this point. The next thing he does is say, hey, did you call the twins' parents to let them know that their children could have been exposed to arsenic poisoning? And she was like, oh, no, you know what? I'll call them right now. I have their number in my address book in my purse. I'm going to call them right now. So she reportedly called the twins' mother from the coroner's office. And she told the coroner that they were going to follow up with their own physician. So he didn't have to like investigate to make sure they were okay. But they were, they seemed fine. Okay. So after that, the coroner sent the tissue samples from Marsha's body and the ant poison provided by Anjette to the crime lab to see if there was a match. So he obviously is involving the police at this point, and they are really interested in Anjette's occult fascinations. And basically, there was rumors all over town that she was the target of a black magic spell. But when they investigated, they found out, obviously, that she was actually the one buying all the black candles. And she was the one going to this alleged voodoo man like once a day and stuff. So they're like, okay, she's the one doing weird stuff right now. And let's take a hard look at Anjette for the very first time. And their hard look turned into a full-blown homicide investigation when the findings from the lab came back on April 17th and it said that little Marsha had indeed died from arsenic poisoning matching the ant poison that Anjette had provided. Okay. Uh-huh. So, of course, the cops start leaning on Anjette, and she did a classic scumbag move of trying to pin the murders on one of her victims. She gave the sheriff a note that read as follows. Anjette, please forgive me for doing the things to you that I did and to little Ben. I did wrong, and for that I am paying with my death, as I am the cause of my son's death and my own. I know I was sick, and you did all you could to make me well. My own family will do nothing for me. Love, Julia Y. Lyles. She waited until the officer had read it and then said, My maid Carmen found that in one of Mrs. Lyles's pocketbooks at the house. I thought I should make a copy of it. You can see that it shows that I had nothing to do with her death or little Ben's. Little Ben? That's the nickname of her first husband. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, my God. The audacity. So the cops were like, 
lady, are you for real? You think that this note that you clearly wrote yourself is going to exonerate you from what we know you absolutely did? After interviewing Anjet's employees and Julia Lyles' family members, the cops decided to exhume the bodies of Ben, Buddy, and Julia as well. And Kel surprise, <sighs> all three of the corpses had large doses of arsenic in them. It's crazy that a black candle can do that. <laughs> it's crazy that a black candle can push arsenic into people's bodies. Yeah, I had no idea. Wild. Better be careful with those black candles. It's, you know, I just, I'm still really confused as to why, as to why she was lighting the black candles and poisoning one or the other, you know? One or the other. Yeah. The coroner could determine that each victim had been poisoned with small doses of arsenic over several weeks or even months. Oh, no. Oh, so she's doing this as they're getting worse and worse and worse. And these are people she supposedly loved. Yep. On May 6, 1958, Anjette Donovan Lyles was arrested for the murders. And while she was in custody, the police searched her home. So they seized financial papers, tins of ant poison, and lots of occult paraphernalia. They found love potion powders, incense, special salts, strange-looking roots suspended in bottles of oil, and hecka candles of every size, shape, and color. One particularly strange thing that they discovered was a man's black sock pinned to the underside of Anjet's mattress. In the toe of the sock was a man's photograph. It was indeed a photo of Bob Franks. Oh, and <laughs> my God, that is terrifying. So creepy. The police believed that the staging was part of a voodoo ritual intended to bring Bob Franks back into Anjet's bed. Oh, my God, that is so scary. Oh, my God, you find out your ex-girlfriend killed four people and that she had your sock pinned to the underside of her mattress with your photo in it when the police searched her house. Wow. But like, that's not like you can't arrest someone for that. No, but you can arrest them for murder. Okay. It's just like, a, it's like a, a little voodoo candle on top of the murder cake over here. <laughs> Yeah, more damaging than that just utter weirdness was that they found open ant poison in Anjet's purse when they searched the house. That's just, like, dangerous. It's just also, like, in your purse, really. Like, that's not a necessary item. It's not like, okay, leaving the house, make sure I have my wallet, my keys, my cell phone, and my <laughs> ant poison. <laughs> and my ant poison. So later on, she would try to say that the reason she had to keep it in her purse was because there was a big ant problem both at her home and at her restaurant. So she was carrying it between the two. But all of her employees said that there was never an ant problem. I mean, I have ants at my house and I don't carry around arsenic ant poison. <laughs> you just light the black candles to kill the ants, right? Yeah. <laughs> Put an ant in a sock and pin it under your bed. Speaking of Bob, so of course, this ended up getting all over the press. And Bob Franks was even interviewed by the New York Daily News. Oh, no, poor guy. Yeah. And this is what he had to say. 
He said that he had dated Anjette and he described her as very attractive and affectionate. I thought she was a very fine person. When I heard the news from Macon, it floored me. I damn near fell out of my chair. But some of his comments were less flattering. At pretty well every hotel I stayed, as I flew around, she would telephone me even overseas. I never accepted any of her calls. I don't even know how she knew where to find me. Hmm, maybe it was that black magic. We started dating, going to nightclubs and places. I got the idea that she was looking for another husband. In fact, it was pretty obvious, but I don't know if she picked me. We never discussed matrimony. So the daily news story was picked up by the wire services and reprinted in papers across the country, including one in Macon, which Anjette read in jail and was apparently crushed by Bob's supposed betrayal of her. Oh, She no. claimed to everyone that he had been in love with her. He had said he was in love with her and he said they were having a future together. So she had no idea why he was acting like they barely dated. I mean, I, you know, that happens sometimes. So I, <laughs> she couldn't be right there. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I'm sure he said those things to her, but I think if I were in his shoes, I'd be like, yeah, I'm going to distance myself from, uh, you know, that murderess. I'm going to maybe pretend like we that- weren't. Hot and heavy. Might be be the best idea. (laughs) Yeah. At Anjette's preliminary hearing, employees testified that they had seen Anjette go into the restroom with her purse and a glass of lemonade before bringing it to the hospital to give to Marsha. Anjette's maid Carmen also testified that she had seen ant poison in Anjette's dresser drawers as well as her purse. Unsurprisingly, Anjette Lyles was indicted for murder. The prosecution decided to try her only for Marsha's murder. The thought process being that that was going to be the one that would most pull on the jury's heartstrings, of course. She would be up for the death penalty anyway, with even just being convicted of killing one person. And, and I think this is smart, if something did go wrong and she was somehow acquitted, they could go back and try her for any one of the other murders. Okay. So they'd get another whack at the apple, you know? So in October of 1958, Anjette's trial began. The prosecution's opening statements outlined a woman who maliciously murdered for hate and greed and looked callously on while her victims suffered gruesome and painful deaths. After receiving $1,200 for her first husband's death and $20,000 for her second, a marriage she was in for all of six months, she still wasn't financially secure because Anjette quote, spent money like a drunken sailor. That's what the prosecutor said. Yep. So then she went to falsifying her mother-in-law's will to profit off of her death and an insurance policy on her little girl resulting in the most heinous (gasps) of crimes, a mother killing her own child. The prosecution then began bringing in witnesses who testified that the bodies of the four victims were properly identified and tested for arsenic poisoning. The medical examiner testified that the arsenic found in the bodies was a match for the ant poison, not only found in her purse and house, but actually provided by Anjette Lyles herself. Oh and she, she thought that she was getting out ahead of the ball by going to the corner and saying like, oh, my kids were playing with this poison when she was really just showing her ass. Wow. Wow. She, she did it to herself. I mean, I feel like they would have caught on eventually, uh, but her yeah. showing up and handing them the poison she'd been using. Come on, girl. 
Girl. An expert witness for the prosecution was a doctor from Boston named Dr. Ford, who explained how arsenic worked and how doctors could have failed to diagnose the true cause of suffering so many times. He said, doctors almost never arrive at a diagnosis of arsenic poisoning without some outside evidence to indicate it. What sort of evidence? Well, it usually has to be something very direct. A patient suggesting that he had been exposed to arsenic would probably do it, or an empty container of the poison found in the area. Without that, the average physician would never make the correct diagnosis. He also said that the medical examiner confirmed that it was done in small doses over a large amount of time and explained the science with how he knew that based on like the poison in the hair and the fingernails. But Dr. Ford also said it's also just common sense. If you get a big dose, your body actually just pukes it up. And so it's especially, it's like gets out of you. But if somebody doses you with tiny little doses, your body, eventually it builds up in your system. And that's what kills you. So scary. So scary. He also explained that arsenic attacked the weakest organs of the body so that one patient might be thought to have died of a heart problem, while in another, the cause of death would appear to be a respiratory infection. And that's why it's so hard to diagnose because it would manifest differently in different patients. So terrifying. It's so scary. He also explained that arsenic has no characteristic odor and that its taste could be easily masked by mixing it with other substances. So the defense half-heartedly tried on cross-examination to suggest that the arsenic was only present in the bodies because it was in the embalming fluid, which could have been a compelling point had it not been for the fact that the medical examiner had also tested the embalming fluid used in all of the bodies and it was free of arsenic and they hadn't really used arsenic in embalming fluid for over a decade at this point. So it was a big old no. Yeah, no. A forensic accountant testified to motive by showing how dire Anjet's financial situation had been prior to Buddy's death. On January 31st, 1956, she had been down to $7.19. But when his life insurance and veterans benefits kicked in, she had over $20,000 in her accounts. However, due to her spendthrift ways, she burned through the entirety of her windfall and was down to only $244 by the end of April. Whoa. Yeah. Thus, she needed to kill her mother-in-law to keep up her lifestyle. Furthermore, a car dealer testified that Ann Jett had wanted to buy a new convertible in the summer of 1957, but she could not afford the deposit. And she reportedly told this guy that her mother-in-law was very, very sick and close to death and she was the beneficiary of her will. So after her mother-in-law died, she would be back to get the car. Okay. And this was... not go around town. Saying this. It's unbelievable. It's unbelievable. (gasps) Oh, thank goodness for these people paying attention, you know? Yeah, absolutely. I also think like when this started to get out, people were like, wait a minute. I'm going to review all the things she said in in the timeline here because things are not adding up. A forgery expert testified that Anjette had forged both the burial arrangement letter as well as the will, naturally. Police corroborated the fraud by finding sheets of practice letters and Julia's signature during the search of Anjette's home. They found pieces of paper where she had practiced signing her signature over and over again. <laughs> like what you do when you're a little kid doing your parents' yeah. signature. <laughs> yes. Wow. Uh, wow. Only she's not trying to get out of class, Andy. She's trying to murder and cash in on her estate. Yeah, not a good luck. 
No. Jenny, Buddy's nurse, also testified to Anjette's weird statements only a couple months after her husband's death. Good. And uh, several employees testified that Anjette was actually really, really mean to little Marsha, saying that she often called Marsha a Lyle's looking little son of a bitch and wished death upon her. Oh, my God. Horrible, horrible. Poor little girl. Oh, my God. Thank goodness for all these people testifying. Yeah. And that's what the employees said that they basically raised Marsha because Anjette was such a terrible mother and was so mean, especially to Marsha, because I guess she kind of like took after her father's side of the family, like looks wise. Wow. Wow. Oh, yeah. Mm hmm. And other employees testified that Anjette routinely brought the buttermilk intended for Julie at the hospital into the restroom before bringing it to her just like she had with Marsha's lemonade. Okay. Yeah. And so remember when she went to the coroner and she was like, okay, I'm going to call the twins mom and tell them that they might have ingested poison. So it turns out that was a big old lie. Carmen, the maid, got on the stand and said when that happened, she called her own house. And Carmen answered the phone and had like this one-sided weird conversation with her boss who was just talking at her and pretending to have a conversation. Whoa. Yep. And so the twins' mother also testified that that day she did not receive a phone call. She also didn't receive a phone call on any other day. And until the police notified her, she had no idea that her children might have been exposed to arsenic poisoning. So scary. So scary. So they're like, okay, she's a big old liar. And speaking of that liar, the prosecution rested and the defense brought up their only witness, Anjette Donovan Lyles herself. So normally this would be a tricky move, which is why we see that most defense attorneys advise their clients not to take the stand in their own defense. Yeah. But in 1958, Georgia law provided for defendants in capital cases, and this was a death penalty case, to make unsworn statements where cross-examination was not allowed. So she can just get up there and say whatever she wants and they can't, you know, grill her. Okay. So in Jet's story is that she is this hardworking single mother who has overcome terrible adversity her whole life. She said the idea that she benefited from Ben Jr., little Ben's death, was ridiculous. She said she had, I guess, collected something like $1,200 when all was said and done. But she had been so poor that she was forced to move in with her parents after he passed. And Jet doubled down that by refusing an autopsy for her second husband, Buddy, she was simply honoring his request that she too had told him that she hated the idea of being cut open after death and that they had promised one another that should one of them pass first, they would not allow an autopsy, which seems ridiculous. Yeah, I mean, autopsy is different from like, I mean, I get it when people like want to be buried instead of cremated, like that type of stuff people should talk about with their partners. But the autopsy thing is strange. Like, and usually it should be totally fine to do an autopsy if there's no fishy business. Exactly. Andy, I would like you very, very strenuously to make sure I get an autopsy if I die in a mysterious fashion. I would like you to make that your mission. (laughs) Same. Yes, demand it. Another thing that some witnesses had said was that she had weirdly predicted both Julia's and Marsha's deaths like way before they were even sick. Yeah. And then when they were sick, she was like, I'm for sure they're going to die. 
And so people reported that. So on the stand, she said that actually it was the voodoo man that had told her fortune and predicted it and that they weren't uh-huh. her predictions. They were his predictions. She was just mentioning them. Okay. So now she's blaming everything on black magic, which is really messed up to do to black magic. <laughs> yeah. This guy's just trying to like make a buck, selling some crazy yeah. white woman, a bunch of shit, you know? And, and now she's trying him. to say it's his fault. Yeah. <laughs> Unbelievable. So yeah. And also a nurse at the hospital who had been taking care of Marsha when she passed said that she had witnessed Anjette laughing while her daughter was having these terrible hallucinations. And and Jet said, and, you know, it's so cruel. Um, and Jet said in response to that that she had a condition, which was a nervous tick, that forced her to laugh at inappropriate times. Now you're making up conditions. Yes. And nobody, nobody was buying what this lady was selling. So the defense's closing argument included the fact that Anjet had only made. off of Marsha's life insurance policy and that she had then spent $1,200 on her funeral. So they were saying like, she basically made no money off of this. Why would she kill her child? You know, that's what the defense is trying to say. This just doesn't make sense. All of this evidence is circumstantial, which is another reason why I think she might've been trying to kill her children to be more attractive to Bob Franks. So the prosecutor in his closing statement said that the defendant should die for her crimes. And then he brutally listed the fate of each victim, claiming that before bringing on death, the poison given to them by Anjet Lyles had turned one man insane, transformed a second into a running sore, and made one woman a helpless cripple. He declared that Marsha, whom he described as a baby, had died in agony. The trial was not just about the defendant. He wanted to make sure they remembered the four people who had been brutally murdered. Yep. So after only a 90-minute deliberation, the jury returned a verdict of guilty with the recommendation to the judge of no mercy. Shit. Yeah, so this was a death penalty trial. So essentially the jury could say, you know, mercy, which would be like life imprisonment or no mercy, which means we suggest you kill this motherfucker, you know? Yep. And the judge agreed and said, off to the electric chair with you, you murderous wench. Oh, my goodness. Yep. So naturally, Anjette's attorneys requested a new trial, which was denied. And then they appealed the conviction and the sentence, but that was denied as well. Anjette was sent to Reedsville State Prison, where she would eventually face her demise in the electric chair. In media interviews while in prison, Anjette maintained her innocence, but she did admit to forging Julia's will. Weeks before her scheduled execution, Anjette's attorneys managed to get the governor to sign a 60-day stay of execution while they prepared a Hail Mary insanity plea on Anjette's behalf. In an effort to prove that Anjette was insane and therefore not mentally competent to get executed, her attorneys paid for a battery of psych testing and even hypnotherapy. During her hearing, one of the hypnotists claimed that while under hypnosis, Anjette told the doctor that it was Julia Lyles who killed her son, Ben, Anjette's husband, Buddy, and herself. So, you know, the natural follow-up is if she did all of that, 
then what's your excuse for Marsha? Why was Marsha yeah. poisoned? Yeah. And she tried to throw her own mother under the bus who had stood by her through the whole trial. And then she said, it was my mom, Jetta Donovan, who poisoned my daughter. Come on. Everyone but you. Everyone but her. Another psychiatrist testified that Anjette was a schizophrenic with paranoid delusions. And though he could not determine her guilt or innocence in the murders, he believed that she was mentally unwell enough to not go to the electric chair. The prosecution entered some love letters that Anjette had written to a totally different man that she had been conversing with. And the letters were very rational and coherent. So he's like, the prosecution's like, she's fine. She's just pretending. And they're paying witnesses to say that, that she's insane so that she won't go to the electric chair. Like, just kill her already, okay? Yeah. So eventually it seemed like they ruled that they would not kill Anjat. And and they say it was mostly because of political pressure to not kill a white woman. Specifically a potentially mentally ill white woman, she would have been the first white woman executed in Georgia. So, and Jet gets a pass. However, only on the condition that she spend the rest of her life in a state mental hospital. And if she ever gets to the point where the doctors at the mental hospital feel that she is recovered and can live a normal and healthy lifestyle, that she does not get released to the public. She instead goes back to death row. If she's well enough to live, she's well enough to die. Okay. Whoa. Whoa. Yeah. That's pretty heavy. So the rest of her life, she spent basically walking a tightrope of exactly failing just enough not to be sent to the electric chair. Her life officially came to an end one December day in 1977 and Milledgeville Mental Hospital, where she died of heart failure. She was 52 years old and for some God only knows reason, was buried next to Ben and Marsha, the husband and the daughter that she had killed. Wow. Wow. It's always so weird when they do that. Yeah. Wow. What a tale, huh? Crazy. Definitely Halloween eerie. It's an eerie tale. We never will quite know what the black magic had to do with this, but I think we should leave black magic out of it, to be honest, now that we're done. Like, I think (laughs) there's good magic too, you know what I mean? And it's like, I don't want to loop all that in with arsenic poisoning over here. (laughs) Black magic was just a scapegoat. It was. It was a scapegoat. And, And so unfortunately, there wasn't a Wikipedia article for this one. So I don't have per se, a Wikipedia fun fact. Um, But I do have a fun story about how we got this listener recommendation. Mandy, I hope you've listened all the way through. uh, She told me in her email that she found out uh, who about who Anjette Lyles was um, because she used to work at an antique store while she was in college like 20 years ago. And they had this one regular that always came in and she struck up a conversation and the woman brought up the fact that she was friends with this woman and had been Anjette's roommate at the state mental hospital together. Mandy was like, wow, okay. Our relationship is slightly different now. All right. So thank you so much for sharing that with me. This story was really wild. And I hope you guys all have a really spooky and safe Halloween. Have fun. And you know, light your black candles. We're not scared. 
And next week, we're going to be together. We are. It's going to be so spectacular. I am so excited. And then you're going to be back for a really long time, just a few weeks after that. Mm -hmm. So we're really excited about the fall. I hope you guys are excited too about getting into the holiday season. We're going to have some fun. In conclusion... If you are a murdering sociopath, maybe you shouldn't just go directly to the corner and hand over the murder weapon. They're going to figure out it's you. Yeah. And also, like, let's stop trying to scapegoat black magic when you're really just killing people with arsenic. And you're not a magic murderer. You're just a murderer. You're just poisoning people. It's really not cool. Not cool. And as always, trust your gut when it comes to love. No one ends up poisoned. Love you guys. See you next week.